0: Alright, if you would turn to the book of Titus, chapter two. It's after 1st and 2nd Timothy, before Hebrews. We'll be going through chapter 2. We're pushing the clock, so you'll have to listen quickly today. Although the sermon's a little bit shorter than normal, so we should be fine. So, and even if it's not, we'll be fine. So, Titus 2, verses 1 through 15. Listen carefully as this is the word of the Lord. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us to Paul's letter to Titus this morning. To learn more about sound doctrine and how we live that out in the real world and Lord this is hard we don't trust in our own ability to treat people well to teach them well or even to encourage them well on top of that our behavior doesn't always reflect our beliefs all that well our faith sometimes gives way to worldly passions so Lord we need you we need you to teach us what to do teach us what to say teach us what to believe Teach us how to live and teach us how to teach. Build our faith, draw us near, help us learn from you this morning. So we pray, speak through these words of the Apostle Paul this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Many years ago, a lot of years ago, uh, when my kids were little, uh, I coached a four- and five-year-old soccer team. Why? I asked myself that many times. And apparently the answer is that God, in his sovereign grace and wisdom, wanted to teach me patience. No, well, that may be true, but I wanted to spend more time with my kids and interact more with unbelievers where we lived at the time. Anyway, if you've ever seen five-year-olds, a bunch of five-year-olds in a soccer game, it's a mess, just an absolute mess. Essentially, you have a dozen kids swarming around the ball, kicking frantically at the ball, not necessarily kicking the ball, but kicking at the ball. And there's always the odd kids zoning out, you know, counting the dandelions or tracking the movement of an ant. But on the whole, they're like a bunch of Labrador retrievers. They're happily running around in a pack, barking, excited about nothing. So when you coach four- and five-year-olds, uh, you don't come up with plays. You, uh, basically, you've got three things you're trying to help them learn other than don't bite each other, which I'm not sure why that one is not obvious, but it has to be said. So three things. One, go in the right direction. At the start of each game, and then again at halftime, you have to ask them now, which goal are we trying to score in? And you make them point to that goal, every one of them. And every time at least one kid points in the wrong direction, usually my kid. Um, but, and when they score in the wrong goal, uh, they look to you for encouragement. And you just smile, because there's nothing else you can do. You know, and after they look away, you turn around and look at the parents in the stands and just kind of shrug your shoulders like, hey, I'm trying. You know, so go in the right direction. Second thing is don't leave the field while the game is still going on. I've seen more than one kid get to the end of the field, see something interesting, and just keep on going. Or God forbid, if you're playing on a field that's next to another field, they might just join that game. Or they'll let you know they're tired by uh, coming over to sit down and get a snack, and sometimes they just lay down in the middle of the field, which leaves you wondering, are they okay? Do I need to do something? Are they still breathing? But then they'll roll over and start watching the ants so you know they're fine. Third thing is there is such a thing as positions. They don't get it. They just want to swarm. But you're trying to explain that the game is actually more fun if they play their positions plus there's a beauty to the game when they do and they might actually win and they will absolutely agree with every single word until someone kicks the ball and they swarm and of course when you say something to them they'll say I'm not out of position he's out of position All of that is what Paul is dealing with here. Paul is the coach, and in Titus 2, he gives a list of specialized instructions to various groups of people in the church, ranging from retired people to young men, from homemakers to business leaders. And he's trying to get them to do these same three things. Play their positions, everyone's called uh, to do different things but act in similar ways. Don't leave the field early. It's always uh, too early to quit the Christian life. And third, we all go in the right direction, the direction set out by the gospel. And don't bite each other. Still needs to be said. So that's what's going on here in Titus 2. And we're going to start with play your position, which means that all generations need the right belief. All generations need the right belief. Uh, Friday, I changed the title of this sermon. Uh, it was Truth uh, uh, in the Home, and now it's uh, Truth for All Generations, but I forgot to tell people that I changed the title. So, It's All Generations Need the Right Belief, verses 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. number of thoughts here. Virtually all commentators on this passage break it down by group. Here's what Paul says to the older men, the older women, the younger women, and the younger men. And then they list the behaviors of uh, each of these groups that are expected to exhibit. And that's not entirely wrong, but it's somewhat wrong. The key phrases here are the first and the last. Everything else needs to fit within with those two phrases. So if we put them together, verse 1 and the end of verse 10, we read... But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This entire section is not about how we should behave, but it's about how our behavior reveals our beliefs, how our behavior reveals our beliefs. Does our behavior accord with sound doctrine? Does our behavior adorn the doctrine of God our Savior? And the instructions he gives are essentially the same uh, for the older men, the older women, and the younger men. The list gets shorter, but they don't change much. Paul's telling the older men, if you're going to teach what accords with, what is consistent with sound doctrine, then here's what I'm looking for. And he lists six character traits. Older women, notice he says likewise, They only list four character traits. Young men, same thing, but you get three traits emphasized. And what he's saying is that the whole household of God needs to believe, and we can see that they believe in how they behave. Living according to what you believe can be seen in lives that are reverent and self-controlled. And since you're living out your faith, you're now able to teach that same faith And all three groups are told to teach now there's one group that's different and that's the younger women and I think there's two reasons for that one they're not directly addressed at all they only get mentioned because the older women are to be teaching and training them it appears these are women who uh, might be newly married or have young families or both And as many of you can tell me it's an incredibly busy time it can be an exhausting time I've said for years that the most tired people in the church are the moms of toddlers and it's a time where it's easy to get sidetracked in the faith so the older women are to come alongside them to make sure that in this hectic life that comes with raising children They don't lose their faith along the way. Second, Titus is not only to teach sound doctrine, but also what accords with sound doctrine. He is to have a concern with the life that follows from the truth. The Christian life needs as much explanation as Christian doctrine does. We're not done with any of our preaching and teaching until we make application to the who, what, where, when, why, and how of people's actual lives. And that application ought to be particular to the several groups of people in our churches. <coughs> Excuse me. Not just older and younger, but to all the generations. And I count five generations in our church. Not just men and women, but all the other means of diversity in the church. That would include differences in ethnicity, socioeconomic status, family status, single, separated, divorced, widowed, cohabitating, newly married, married with no kids, married with kids, married with a lot of kids, married with special needs kids, and single parents. And then we have to consider where you're from, what part of the country, what part of the world. Did you grow up in a rural area, a suburban area, or an urban area? Just because people look the same doesn't mean that they are the same. All of those differences mean that, for the most part, we all think and act and speak a little differently. (coughs) So, let's put them all together. I do this exercise with my students. Actually, that will be coming this Tuesday. We may have someone in our church uh, who grew up Methodist, moved here from Albany, Georgia, but previously immigrated from Southeast Asia, is 35 years old and thus a millennial, is married to a biracial man who grew up nominal Catholic in Albany, New York. He's now 43, meaning he's a Gen Xer, and he has a hard time understanding his wife's Southern Asian Methodist accent. And they have kids. They only wanted two, but now they have four. All of them are under the age of eight, and two of them have learning disabilities. That mixture of all the different types of diversities found in one family is now common. And ministry today requires those who preach and teach to know how to insert the truth into the life where people actually find themselves. (coughs) That's not just true for us. It's not just true for pastors. But for all of those who are spiritually mature, who will carry the bulk of the teaching load in the context of the local church. And this requires that we all get to know and love and live with the other people in the church? How else can anyone make application of the Word of God in such personal situations? (coughs) Mm, something's caught. The second thing is that we become surrogate families to a lot of people in the church. Few people today live in the area where they grew up. And that means the local church has a responsibility for raising younger saints into maturity and encouraging older saints uh, to age with respect and dignity, teaching what accords with sound doctrine. So that's what's going on here um, that uh, um, Titus is telling them. You've got to consider where people are actually at, and everyone is different. Now there's one thing in here that's really interesting. I find it instructive that Titus is to teach the older women how to be older women. That's fascinating. I can't think of a single pastor job description where that was listed as a requirement, not one. But perhaps that helps to explain why uh, so many ministries known for their teaching are known to be great places for men's discipleship, but not so great places for women's. There is a missing link between the pastor and the older women who are then responsible to teach younger women. And in Titus's context on the island of Crete, there tends to be a lot of women around. This is an island in the Mediterranean. It's economy is built around sailing and shipping and so the men are gone they're off island most of the time which means most of the people who are on the island are women and most churches there tend to be a lot of women around usually more women than men in fact I have uh, Jen Marshall Patterson um, the lecturer and heads our Institute for Theology and Public Life at RTS She actually will come to my class and talk about how women hear preaching because most of my students are men. We miss a vital opportunity and a primary way to strengthen communities if we neglect the older women, and by extension, the younger women in the churches and communities where we're trying to work. All of that means that teaching people how to live is nothing short of reconstituting, restructuring, remodeling families and households. Contexts like Crete, contexts like Northern Virginia, tend to exert tremendous pressure on male-female relationships and weaken families. If you're living according to the philosophy of the world, that tends to pull marriages apart and leave children uninstructed in the things of God. And the gospel of our Lord works against all of that by insisting on lives that conform to the truth that are in accord with sound doctrine. And make no mistake, it is slow, difficult work. But the gospel in Crete and everyone else calls us uh, to what is typically described as a traditional view of marriage, marital roles, and raising children. Now, don't mishear me here. I don't mean to say anything under the label of traditional is good, it's not. A lot of abuse hides under that label. But I do mean to say that stressing in this Cretan context of immense immorality and idolatry and just plain selfishness, but stressing the virtues of marriage, of complementarian gender roles, of focusing on children, of respectable behavior and self-control is what accords with sound doctrine in this text and as such it becomes a vital part of how we show forth the gospel with our lives in any and all circumstances it's one thing to preach the gospel in difficult places it is quite another thing to show people how to live uh, in a manner worthy of their calling in those difficult places and it doesn't matter what position you play older man older woman younger man younger women You have a role to fulfill wherever you are in life you need to demonstrate the right beliefs by how you live we all have to play our position next you don't get to leave the field while the game is still going on Paul doesn't ignore behavior um, because he knows the wrong behavior disqualifies you from ministry and Crete is filled with bad behavior people And so Paul emphasizes how salvation changes our behavior when he says that all generations need the right behavior. All generations need the right behavior, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age. So we have three terms there, self-controlled upright and godly lives. It seems to be almost a three-dimensional focus to the different aspects of the Christian life. With self-control the focus is directed inward towards ourselves, our own desires, our own motivations, our own pursuits. Uprightness is related to the word for justice. And so it's directed outward. It's focused on our love for our neighbors, that we would treat one another with kindness, integrity, honesty, compassion, and generosity. And then a godly life is directed upward, focused on our relationship with the Lord, so that our lives are marked by worship and devotion and personal piety. So, what does that look like? What is a life of self control, uprightness, and godliness? look like. It's a life that looks like Jesus' life. And we probably can't make these categories all that precise with just three words. And yet we can see something in what Paul is saying here. There is a comprehensiveness about a life of holiness. It touches everything we do and every part of our being. There's something about godliness in this book, in the scriptures, in all of the scriptures that's demanding. In fact, if you go back to the whole book of Titus, if you read this, it's a short little letter, but if you read it again, you'll find that Paul's exhortations to all the Christians, all the different people in Crete, all the different people in the church, can become an almost crushing standard to live up to. And part of it is one of the favorite words that Uh, Paul uses to Titus his good works. He says be zealous for good works. Be devoted to good works. How can we live like that? How can we say no to the ways of the present age and yes to the ways of God in this present age? How do we do that? Well it's not by our own works. It's not by working for our salvation. It's not by trying to build up enough good works to be saved. It's by living a new life By faith in Christ. It's by receiving and believing. John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's by belonging to Christ Jesus. And to do that, Paul says, we all need to go in the same direction. We all need to go in the right direction. And we need to realize not only that we belong, but that everyone here, that all generations Need to belong. Verses 13 through 15. All generations need to belong, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. How do we say no to the ways of the present age and yes to the ways of God in this present age? It's by living a life that begins with the grace of God and is carried forth by the grace of God and is looking forward to the glory of God one day, that day. It's by living out the good news that comes to us in these verses. That's how we live out what Paul calls us to live out. Now, we see that grace does two things when it appears. First, as we saw with the first advent, the first appearance, grace brings salvation for all people, all generations. Without the grace of God, there'd be no salvation for anyone. And we're rescued from the coming wrath of God only because God in Christ is kind to people who don't deserve it. The Lord Jesus Christ manifests the kindness of God and in him, all people find, may find an unearned salvation: rescue from God's judgment, and because God's love is not earned, purchased or bordered. It is given freely by a God who cannot be compelled from without to show grace to sinners who are full of lawlessness within. When the grace of God appeared in that first coming of Jesus Christ, it appeared to bring salvation. But grace does the second thing. Grace trains or teaches. It not only saves us, it also instructs us. Genuine grace has instructional power. That's how you distinguish it from its cheap counterfeits. Cheap grace does nothing to change the lives of its people. But saving grace teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now remember, Crete is a difficult context to minister in. Just as Northern Virginia is a difficult context to minister in. And the rougher the context, the more relentlessly it assaults Oppression, violence, isolation, and abandonment, all types of abuse, all these conspire to rob people of hope. The life-giving anticipation of a better day and a better life. In our society today, we're seeing an unprecedented sense of despair. But when people look to Christ's return, our text says they look to their blessed hope. They know that his coming changes everything, and that's partly why they're able to live godly lives in the present age of brokenness and sin and despair and death, because Christ is coming, and when he appears, everything will be renewed, everything will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The grit and grime of life will give way to the glory of the Lord, the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That one is going to return to claim his redeemed and purified people. A deep, abiding, unshakable anticipation of our Savior's appearing in glory is our blessed hope. It's how we're able to do good works when we're surrounded by evil ones. It's how we're able to see above the fray with heads raised high when others are crushed beneath the rubble of this fallen world. And it's how we dig people out from beneath that rubble with a divine hope in Jesus Christ. The gospel brings that hope to those he claims for his own possessions, for those who belong to him. Now you may already know, but we are... uh, Only 36 days away from Christmas it will be here before you know it and we're used to that we're used to the waiting that goes along with Christmas aren't we that's just as true in the church it is with all the traditions celebrated in the world around us starting in December we'll have Advent sermons and an Advent wreath next Sunday we'll be giving out Advent devotional books for both kids and adults there will be community group Christmas parties And you're invited even if you're not in a community group though you should be and this would be a good time to start and of course we have the music of Christmas which means that I may have perhaps already set the Christmas music stations on my car radio it's possible don't judge me there will be poinsettias at some point and most of our homes will have some form of garland decorating the front hallway And all of that is in anticipation for Christmas. It's looking forward to the celebration of the birth of Jesus. And our whole culture participates, even if they don't know Christ, because they still want presents. We're all familiar with waiting for Christmas. Now, the truth about this Titus 2 passage is it's about waiting as well. Except it's not about waiting for Christmas. It's about waiting after Christmas. It's about how we live now that Christ has come. How do we live in light of the events of Christ's birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension? How do we live in light of the anticipation of Christ's return at the end of history? You see, Jesus is going to come again. And there are two Advent's we have to remember at Christmas time. An Advent means a coming or arrival. There's two Advent's to remember one is the coming that has already happened, that Jesus was born. In Bethlehem, when he appeared, he brought salvation. The second is his return. And the last day, as our text says, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And as we wait for that day, we are called to live in a certain way. And these verses are about this time of waiting. They're about how we should live right now. And I think it gives us a new way to think about Christmas or maybe a different purpose from what we typically uh, go about, how we go about celebrating Christmas. And what is Christmas for? Titus 2 tells us that when the grace of God appeared in Jesus Christ, it is to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to teach us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In other words, Christmas should impact how we live right now. It should impact both our beliefs and our behavior. Because if we're to have gratitude for God's grace and an appreciation for who He is and what He's done and an expectation for His glory, then that should produce in us lives of self-control, uprightness, and godliness. That's what enables us to live godly lives to the praise of God's grace in this present age. You see, if we come to Christmas... And Christmas becomes an excuse for us to simply indulge ourselves and get all caught up in man-made traditions. That's not just a distortion of Christmas. It's a contradiction of the Christian life. What Paul is calling us uh, uh, to here is to remember the birth of Jesus and look back. Look back to the grace of God that has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And he's calling us, To look ahead, to look ahead to the next appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And then to wait. And we wait by living a changed life, a renewed life, a transformed life filled with self-control, uprightness, and godliness in this present age. In an age where depression, anxiety, and other mental health struggles aim to steal our hope. We have to be people who return to the foundation of our faith. Ephesians 5, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Hopeless hearts need to soak up this great truth. Because Jesus didn't save us just so we would have the right behavior or just so that even we would have the right beliefs. He saved us To make us his. And may you bound in hope. By the power of the spirit. As you believe in the one. Who calls you mine. The one who says. You belong. And for that reason. Our message is called good news. Because it is. Pray for that. Thank him for that. Do that now. And then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess that there are times when we fail to do what you've called us to do. And there are times when we run off the field because our behavior dishonors your name. Lord, forgive us for failing to let our brothers and sisters in Christ know that they belong just as much as we do. Father, help us to be people who train ourselves for godliness because we have our hope set on the living God. We know that we can only do that through the merits of your Son whose blood and righteousness grant us access to the throne of grace. So give us the faith to believe what you have told us about your Son. Give us the strength to behave in accordance with our beliefs. And place in us the ability to wait for our blessed hope The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Our Savior, your Son, the one who makes us his and who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.